You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. We have with us um, the Consul General Ambassador Mauricio Toussaint, who would like to say a few words before we begin. Hello, good evening. Thanks for, for being here. I'm going to be very brief. And uh, first of all, I want to express the Consulate uh, General of Mexico deep appreciation for the effort and the excellent job that AGO and all the staff uh, in AGO has done for uh, this exhibition. It's been it's a success. And... Uh, and um, Mr. Tattelbaum and all the, the, the staff at the AGO has uh, collaborated with the Mexican teams, um, the curator, Madame, Madame Dot, of course. And, uh, and so uh, I was hearing now the, the figures about the attendance, and, the, and it is evident the interest that uh, Canadian people has shown to this, to this uh, film. We are very proud and, and I would say happy to, to uh, present today the, the film uh, Frida Naturaleza Viva. I know that, uh, that Salma Hayek is much more popular <laughs> in Hollywood and actually the, the, the people involved with, uh, with Frida and Diego uh, activities in Mexico, academics. So they think that uh, it was a, a good film because not only for showing and uh, and uh, and putting uh, much uh, much more easier uh, to the public, uh, Frida and Diego, but uh, also because uh, the, the the Salma Hayek films film shows a, a colorful. A, um, very joyful Mexico, who, who is not only shown in the media today. And uh, so, but this, this film, it's a 30 years film, 30 years old film. Uh, it was produced in 1983 with, uh, it's a classic now, uh, with Ophelia Medina and a superb actress in Mexico uh, uh, the director, Paul Leduc, who is a, a, a very uh, notable intellectual, intellectual in Mexico. And uh, I love it particularly because this, this uh, film shows not only the story, but the paintings. And every scene, and you will see that today, every scene is a, a, a painting itself. And so I'm sure you will enjoy as we as we do, and uh, I would only like to add uh, a phrase that uh, the director of the Dolores Olmedo Museum, the museum the, from where most uh, uh, paintings in the exhibition come, he says that uh, uh, of course Frida and Diego are two of the most important icons of Mexico in the 20th century. 
but he distinguished between between them, saying that uh, Diego was a painter who became an icon, and Frida was an icon who painted. Okay. Thank you, thank you for being, being here, and enjoy the film. Thank you very much. And now I'd like to invite Dot Tua, who's the guest curator of this exhibition, to say a few words before the film begins, and then afterwards we will be able to have a discussion about the film with Dot. So I just want to say a very few words just to add to what Mauricio has said. Uh, I think it's really important to understand that this film was uh, incredibly significant when it came out and it preceded uh, many of the documentaries as well as the Selma Hayek film uh, that has made Frida so popular in the Hollywood imaginary. And I just want to talk a little bit about what the film does. Uh, the film is formally innovative. It is a feature film, but it has, I'd like you to think as you watch it about a number of things. It functions to, it combines very, very elaborate tableau and uh, many of the objects that the camera moves through and around it are also objects that are in the paintings. So it's not about Frida painting, it's about cinematically making these paintings come to life. It's organized around eight different segments. Uh, its principal uh, structure is that Frida is on her deathbed and she's remembering. But her memories are about, so the, so the segments are all a personal antidote in her life, but intersected with those memories are the public memories of Mexico. And so Paula Duke writes, Frida was closed up in her body, in her house, in her studio, in the midst of all these noises of her times, politics, the demonstration she attended, there was her expressive silence of images. Very much what Leduc wants to do is to give you both a sense of that expressive silence of images, but he also introduces uh, history. Very much he seeks to make memory a collective memory. So that it's not just about Frida as this individual, but it's about Frida and her relationship to Mexico, and the relationship of Mexico to a certain nationalism that calls for uh, the valorization of indigenous culture. So some things to pay attention to are this intertwining of the personal recollections of Frida on her deathbed and the more collective memories of the Mexican Revolution that are intertwined. The other thing that distinguishes this film, uh, and it, I should say won many, many awards uh, in its time, is its uh, incredible use of music. What you'll be hearing is a lot of popular music from the time. Uh, it's very, very well researched in this way. 
Susanna Pick, who's a very important uh, film critic who wrote a wonderful book on Latin American cinema, and she teaches, she's Chilean by birth, but she teaches at Carleton University. She argues that Leduc's cinematic project was to free Callow from the solitude of her inward-looking art by reinserting her art into history. In so doing, she argues that what Leduc's film is, is, is a poetics of realism. And I want to emphasize this because what you're about to see, it may appear because of the elaborate sets and the references to a kind of popular Baroque imagery and culture, that this is about surrealism. But it's not. It's about the realism of Mexico in the 1920s and the 1930s. It's really about the intertwining of memory and history. So I hope you enjoy it. It will be a very, very different, moving, um, and a fairly long film. It will be a very different experience than watching the Hollywood Frida film. So with no further ado, we'll be back for discussions. I really hope that people will, uh, will stay and uh, we can talk about the various aspects. I'll be up here as well. I think I've coerced my compañero Geraldo from the Cultural Attaché who uh, in, in, has had many lives. One of them was as a very important cultural journalist in Mexico. So we're hoping he will help me out in those moments where I'm not quite too sure about the specificities of iconography of the Mexican Revolution that you're about to see. So with no further ado, we'll start the film. I, I would be interested in some ways of hearing what people, the impressions of people in the audience, uh, what, what it's like uh, to see this film. The film is uh, it's, it's, it's an, a very amazing film because it plays a lot with memory and with all of, of the events in Frida's life. But it's not just about the events in Frida's life, it's about the interrelationship of Frida and Diego, which is certainly something that... Uh, we wanted to, or certainly I did as the curator, want to convey in the um, exhibition as well. And I was thinking, and I didn't say this at the beginning um, uh, in the introduction, but I've taught Latin American art for uh, a long time, and I used to, they used to be much longer semesters, and I always taught Frida Kahlo and showed this film. Uh, subsequently, the film went out of distribution, and we had a video, and it disappeared. And it's quite hard to get—it's quite hard to see this film, like many of the great classics of new Latin American cinema. And watching it again, I had to ask myself how much some of it must have stayed with me in some part of me that actually then guided me in putting together this exhibition. I was really fascinated to see the film again. I used to show it every year. Uh, it's also, I really want to thank everyone for like, staying with it, because it is, uh, this is, this is for me the great new Latin American cinema and the cinema of the 60s and 70s and into the 80s is uh, the great glory moment of cinema, but it doesn't look like MTV and it does not look like the internet. And it requires you to move into that cinematic space. 
so I don't know if people have specific, if, if the more you know about the history of not just Frida Kahlo, but the history of Diego Rivera, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's his, his uh, very famous 1952 paintings, he's in Anahuacali, they're in the Casa Azul, there's also uh, some of the film that uh, takes place in the San Angel studios, it was built by Juan Orgoman in the early 30s, which are these modernist buildings, so it's quite fa fabulous to see it. And then, of course, there are the political uh, characters. Stalin looms large, as you can see. And, uh, and uh, when she's in the garden, that's her students, who then subsequently paint a number of murals around uh, Mexico City. So I don't know if, Geraldo, you want to say anything or open it to the floor? Yes, thank you. Um, I like what Dot said about how the movie uh, connects Frida and Diego. Um, Frida was, uh, at the time, the wife of Diego, and Diego is now the husband of Frida. So it's good uh, that now uh, Frida is also getting some attention into uh, Diego Rivera, definitely one of the most important painters in Mexico and in, in the world. But we are here for for Frida. And um, the movie uh, also, as Dot states, uh, connects the Frida and Diego with the public events that happens in Mexico and, and abroad. Uh, and that, I think, is a, a very important aspect of the Mexican culture. Artists, intellectuals are uh, very involved with the political, social events uh, uh, in Mexico as a part of a long tradition that started in the 19th, 19th century after the Mexican independence. Uh, so um, at the time, um, Mexico was living the end of the revolution, creating the new state, uh, creating that uh, very unique way to um, rule the political life. Um, Mario Vargas Llosa called Mexico or the pre uh, perfect dictator. Um, fortunately, he was not right. Um, but still, uh, there was also uh, another uh, different rules that allows that the political lives happen. Uh, naturally, a lot of people was out of that dynamic, and people like Frida and Diego were uh, very committed with all those uh, kind of uh, new movements to be, uh, in order to, to open the, the Mexican societies. I think that's a very important aspect of the movie, to see how um, Mexican artists and intellectuals are very involved with the Mexican life. And uh, I mean, just to echo what Geraldo is saying, uh, for me, the, the film is so moving because it, 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 it looks at Frida's painting, it looks at her interior life, but it also gives you a sense, which is something that I've always admired about Frida Kahlo, her, her incredible political commitment, which is in the kind of Frida cult that's arisen, has been in, sort of pushed to a side a bit because everyone wants to project they want their Frida, 
<laughs> their Frida now, their Frida in the 21st century, their Frida that's Madonna's Frida, and not actually the complexity which was Frida Kahlo in the time she lived. And I thought the film did a very, very good... Um, I, I, I thought Le Duc was very balanced in how he understood uh, the, the commitment, but also something that I feel, and it's my interpretation, that as, as Callow's health starts to decline in, in, in the 1940s, and she's very, she's, as you can see, she suffers her whole life, but uh, it, it gets much worse uh, by 46, 45, 46, and she's in tremendous chronic pain. And, and I thought he did a very good job of conveying that her Stalinist convictions are a kind of faith. She, she clings to that. And something I've said also in public talks is to understand that for the, the, the question of international communism in the 1920s and 1930s, which very much the film integrates and focuses on, uh, was a question of a kind of utopic belief in, in a future. And that's something that it, Callow never gives up. Uh, but it's something a lot of people don't give up until even in the early 50s. And it's very hard for us to understand now because what we know is the other side of it, which is, of course, that the, and people knew at the time, but they didn't want to give up that. They really didn't want to give up that utopian uh, faith. And, and it's a little bit, I think this film takes us back to a moment in Mexico. Uh, it's, it, there is like these these kind of utopian faiths that come out of revolutionary movements and very much the case in Mexico. And I, I can't help thinking about what Mexico was like in the 1980s uh, when there was, and, and, and 30 years later, because there's something that's, I, I notice that uh, um, as a professor, there's something about uh, generations that now can't, certainly some of my students can't, when I teach the earlier, these early revolutionary periods and I teach the Mexican rules, they can't conceive that one would have this kind of underlying commitment. And I think if you stick with the film, it gives you a, 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 a multi-dimensionality of what that means, both her interior and her exterior life. I was very moved by, of course, there, there is that last, just the last march she's on which is uh, to protest the overthrow of the, the democratically socialist, democratically elected socialist president of, of Guatemala, uh, just weeks before she dies. And, and, and it, it, I found it very moving in, in that film. You've, we've all seen, many of us have seen the picture. So what I also liked, what Leduc did, is he's playing a lot from the photography and he's bringing the fo still photographs into the cinematic frame. Uh, and I also thought the way he used the paintings was quite fantastic, and many of them actually are in this exhibition, so it was amazing to see them in, in the film. But I think we have a question. Okay, thanks. Uh, do you want to stay here so I can give you the mic back? Okay, great. No, 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 we have here one. Okay, yeah, well, first I just wanted to say thanks for the opportunity to talk about the film and to, it's a nice combination having the film as well as the exhibit. It, and it's a rare occasion actually to have a chance to talk about stuff like this, I think. Um, what I wanted to say was, was that 
the I, I was wondering if, if either of you could talk a little bit about the use of um, 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 how do you say uh, less less um, dialogue in the film, the, the silence in the film. I really appreciate the, the silence in the film and how much it, uh, it, there's a lot of space, a lot of silence in the film. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how effective that is to pull the audience in, in a sort of intellectual way, uh, in, 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 um, in, in enjoying the sort of quiet intensity that's going on. Uh, well, well I'll, perhaps I'll start. Uh, again, the quote that I read by Paul LeDuc, where he was very clear he wanted to convey the silences. Um, I mean, it was a it was a, a decision, a cinematic decision that he made uh, to contrast it with, as he says, the noises of politics. Uh, but I think so. There's that question, but I, I should say that that Paula Duke is part of uh, an entire movement called New Latin American Cinema. Uh, that was one of the greatest auteur movements um, of, uh, in, in the world, really. And uh, that, that, that what, what these gen... It was international. It started in Viña del Mar in 1968, and then uh, there was an international film school founded in Cuba, and there was this tremendous solidarity. And what it really was was filmmakers from across Latin America and, um, seeking to find a different kind of language. And a lot of them um, actually talked about finding a revolutionary language in film. And that can be interpreted very many ways. We have what's called third cinema, which is a call to arms. But Leduc is, is actually making a different kind of revolutionary cinema, a cinema that asks us to um, contemplate. And, and, and I agree with you. I, mean, I, I what my one of my first lives was as an experimental filmmaker, so silence is something that I'm used to. Uh, but I wasn't really sure because this 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 has formal aspects that approach experimental cinema and uh, or certainly formal cinema. And there's there's a number of filmmakers. Um, Raul Ruiz from Chile, who died recently, also used this kind of tableau structure. Uh, so it's something, this kind of tableau, the silences, the Baroque sensibility, is something I say we, that is quite, uh, that, that we associate with the larger movement of new Latin American cinema. And just watching this film made me lament that all these great films are almost impossible to see. Uh, Yes, definitely. The silence is a, a very important uh, um, element in the in the movie. Um, um, it's a movie that asks us to to listen the the visual aspect of, of the film. Uh, so we we read in different um, all of the long uh, and slow sequences. Too many things, no? On the back, a uh, drawing of Frida or a, a picture of Emiliano Zapata. Um, in newspapers, the moment when Diego and Frida are watching the TV uh, and the events in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's uh, uh, the movie is as deep as we can read all those um, 
different components. Probably only the only two or three moments uh, when we listen dialogues is in the political discussions when Sakeros is saying that well, Trotsky is dividing the, um, the the communism and Diego reply, uh, or the another more intimate moment when Trotsky is walking and we are uh, listening uh, what he wrote to Frida. But there are just very good momentums, uh, and I think it's a, it's a very uh, good solution that Leduc decided to, to select only two or three uh, moments of the film uh, to have real dialogues. I also just want to say that, like, from... Uh, okay, sorry. No, Ah, well then, I'm going to hand the mic to the ambassador. <laughs> just, just one last thing I, I, I want to say, and it's, it's probably completely self-evident, but I think one of the reasons, well, for me, the film is very powerful, and uh, by the end, I'm just, it's slow, but by the end, I'm so inside of, of, of I, I imagine I'm inside of Frida Kahlo's world and her psyche, and the silence enables that. And I think the silence is also about what happens when you're very ill, because she is remembering on her deathbed. And I don't know if you've, you, when you have those, I think we've all had a very high fever or something in our lives or been very ill, and actually it is about silence. It, it, it's interesting, you're in the bed, you're alone, it's silent. And I think that that, so there's a double thing, it allows the visual to speak, but it also, it also I think, subconsciously, we enter into that space of memory, because memory is silent. We don't talk our memories out loud. And so it, it, the silence is also a space of memory. It's a very, very uh, interesting film. It's very, very layered in that way. And uh, magnificently put together in terms of montage, like the seamless way he moves through these structures of memory. And I have to now talking forever. Thank you. Well, I just would like to add two, two things. The first one is that uh, Frida was uh, an icon in, in the, the 20th century in Mexico, not only as a painter, but uh, of course she, she was not uh, well seen by the, that the Mexican society. You can see that at the end of the film when those uh, high, high society women go to the, to the gallery. But uh, Frida represented... Um, or was considered a um, grotesque personality. First, because she was not pretty. Ophelia Medina, of course, and Salma, for sure, they, they are different. But Frida was a, a hairy woman with those eyebrows and the mustache. And, you know, uh, today is different. But in those days, dressing with the indigenous clothings was not elegant, so that, that was also weird. She was a communist, she was handicapped, so all the elements for, for discrimination. She was Jewish, because even her mother was Mexican. His father was Jewish from Hungary, 
German, Hungary, and then, then they, he, he lived in, in Germany. But in Mexico, he was considered, uh, and, and Frida was considered Jewish. And uh, she was uh, uh, sexually open-minded, <laughs> you know, with different preferences, promiscuous. So can you imagine a woman, a, a woman like, like, like Frida in those years? So she was for sure discriminated and living in a, in a world of men because polit politicians in Mexico, they, they, were, they were men, most of them, and paint, painters too, because they, they, they were involved in the, in the political movement. And uh, there is a, a cross story between Frida and uh, Dolores Olmedo. Dolores Olmedo is the, the museum, the name of the museum because Dolores Olmedo uh, was a very, she married a British man, very wealthy. He committed suicide, so she inherited a lot of money. She was very rich. And she was, she was two uh, uh, Diego's, one of Diego's women. At the same time <laughs> with Frida. And uh, of course, they were rivals. But always Diego preferred Frida. And uh, when Frida dies in 1954, Dolores Olmedo buys all Frida's works that existed in Mexico. There were, there were other in the United States and Europe, of course. And, uh, but all the existent works in Mexico are, are, are bought by uh, Dolores Olmedo. And, and Dolores Olmedo, well, let me, let me t tell you that, uh, that uh, Carlos Phillips Olmedo told me that uh, uh, his mother was very angry because one day Diego decided to print uh, a couple of, of uh, draws he, 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 he designed, one of Frida, one of Dolores Olmedo, naked. And he printed postcards to give as a gift for, for Diego's friends. So you, can you imagine how, how Mrs. Olmedo <laughs> felt about that? Well, so she locked all the, 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 the paintings and they were uh, hidden for 15 years, I don't know. It's until the end of the 60s, beginning 70s, when a German women's movement, feminists, looking for uh, really uh, exemplary uh, women in all, of, all around the world, they, they find freedom in Mexico. And Carlos Phillips convinces her mother, to, his mother, to forget all the old stories and uh, put uh, Frida and show Frida to the people. So the museum is created by Mrs. Dolores uh, Olmedo, and she uh, became uh, the first Frida's uh, promoter, well, I would say, after Diego. And, and so they got uh, reconciled, you know? So, so that, these are interesting stories behind all this film. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there is a, a couple of more questions, please. Where are they? Uh, 
Well, just, I mean, I think, too, just to contextualize a little bit further is that that to be, a, <clears throat> to be an artist in, in anywhere, but particularly in, in, in Mexico City in this era, one of the things Frida really wanted was to be an artist and to sell her work, to be independent as an artist. That implies having patrons. And so I think you have to say there's a tremendous courage there and a tremendous fight when you don't, when you in fact are living all these things. And so what essentially Mauricio is referring to is in order to sell your paintings, you have to move within a certain um, class. And that class absolutely discriminated against Frida Kahlo. It would be very similar in some way but, but different the way in Argentina, Evita Perón was so hated by the upper class. And I don't think Frida Kahlo was hated by the entire upper class, but I can tell you right now, Dolores Olmedo did not like Frida Kahlo. I can tell you that much. And uh, she not just bought all the paintings, she kind of put them in closets. <laughs> uh, she really was Rivera's. Uh, patron. So there's kind of a complex story there, but I mean, there is another. Again, we want to, you know, it's true that the way, in, in the way marketing sells things, and it's always about the kind of, in some ways, not not the, the, the complexity that makes the artist, but almost the prurient details, which I find really very distressing um, uh, from my point of view. Uh, but there's also, there's the political stories, but there's also the story of how you survive as an artist uh, and the contradictions that that entail. Of course, both of them remain devout communists, but even today, and, and, I, and I respect their beliefs and I think that they're part of their time, but today people refer to Fried and Diego, so they were just communist chic, which I kind of like as a term in some way, but I think it was more than that. I think that they lived there political beliefs. Uh, there's a question. Anyone else? I want more question there, please. That's that's Leduc's decision to play that. And one of the things that the critics of the film talk about at the time, which I think is very interesting and very different than the Hollywood Frida, is they wanted Olfina Med Olfina Medina. Yeah, Ophelia Medina. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, Medina he wanted he didn't want her to become Frida. I know that sounds a bit odd because we, we enter into uh, Kahlo's world, but he used the mirrors as this dis device within the film to fracture, uh, yeah, fracture Frida's mono to, to make her subjectivity multiple, but also one of the things he talks about is he wants to fracture the, 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 the Frida Kahlo as the historical figure from the actress who plays Frida Kahlo. And so we're not really aware of that, but it may be one of the ways that we can so, that we find ourselves entering and that we have this kind of suspension of disbelief in some way. We move into that space because 
we may not realize it, but the use of the mirrors means we're identifying with Medina the actress, which allows us to have another place to see Frida Kahlo from. So it's very, very complex and very, I think, uh, very uh, intelligent. He's a very, he's a great intellectual, Leduc. It's a very intelligent way to think about it. So the mirrors are there as cinematic devices. They're not there to say Frida was the most narcissistic woman in the world and she had all these mirrors in her house. And I don't think we, we get that. In fact, we, th we, we move in to this refracted space through the mirrors and we're always looking back. We're looking back through the actress's eyes. So the actress and, and uh, Medina talks about playing the part and her own relationship to being able to look in the mirror and then be able to become callow by the mirror reflection. So. Uh, one more couple of questions, one there, please. Okay. And now that you mention all those um, um, angles around the mirrors, I wonder if maybe Paul Leduc was thinking that Frida was Alice uh, in the Wonder One land trying to escape of... <laughs> Yes, that's true. Yeah, and she had a mirror on the top of her bed. Yes. Yes. But I also think that, um, you know, to, again, these Frida uses mirrors for various reasons. Leduc is using those mirrors, or he talks about using those mirrors for different reasons. But I also think that if you look at the entire Frida Kahlo's oeuvre, you, I, I would be reticent to, to say that it's all about self-reflection. There's, 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 uh, everyone focuses on, focus is on the self-portraits, but there's actually quite a range of, of, of work that takes, that, that takes place there. I mean, in, in essence, she paints herself because it's not really that, it's, you know, the famous quotes is what I know the best. It's also the conditions of her own, her own body, that she can't gallop through woods and paint landscapes. I mean, she is really confined. By the early 1940s, she's very confined to the Casa Azul. She doesn't have a huge amount of mobility. And that's the other thing I thought that that Leduc really communicated to us that there was a disability all the way through her life. In the Frida film, it's like she seems to be completely fine and then suddenly at the very end of her life, she collapses. Yeah, yeah. She was always... And I, and I think that tells you something too about the, the, this incredible relationship that Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo had. He could have had any... Well, he, he was, he did. But he stuck with Frida through, you know, despite the various uh, uh, distractions in his life, shall we say. I, I think at this point it's 9.30 and I want to thank both of you so much. I mean, it's wonderful, wonderful film. Yes.
And it's so nice to be able to process it afterwards. It's certainly, we are screening this film again on January 9th. And there will also be a talk on January 16th by Carmen Melian, who's Sotheby's um, Latin American specialist in New York. So she's going to be talking about the art market and Diego and Frida. And also you are invited to go to Mexico to visit La Casa Azul and see the murals of Diego. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.